0: Well, we're going to be in Mark 14, if you want to open your Bibles. <clears throat> While you turn there, um, I'll kind of contextualize a little bit. We're six weeks into a series in Mark. Uh, we're, we're coming to the end of Jesus' earthly life here. Next week, we're going to talk about the crucifixion uh, and, and the immediate context surrounding this scripture. Uh, is, is the Last Supper's just happened, the guys head out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus has just told Peter, hey, you're going to deny and betray me, and then they, we, they show up here in Mark 14, verse 32. Um, let me read it. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Let me pray real quick. Father, I thank you for uh, your word given to us that you have um, made clear who you are. I pray this morning as we study it as a group of men, um, open-handed, looking to you that you would uh, do exactly that. That you would make clear the reality of who you are as our Father, of who Christ is as our brother and our Savior, uh, and who the Spirit is working uh, in those of us who believe. I pray that we would um, we would move into discussion this morning um, with greater clarity about who you are, that we might adore you and worship you as we discuss you together. Uh, we trust you. In name we pray. Amen. So we start here in, in, in verse 32. Uh, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Uh, it says he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and this is a, a good reminder for us as we've looked through the book of Mark. Mark. Uh, We believe that that Mark's gospel is is the written testimony of Peter, that that Peter and Mark were buddies, uh, church fathers, the the Bible talks about this, that they knew each other, and so uh, a lot of historians believe that Mark wrote Peter's account of Jesus' life and works. And so I think that's important here, because what we see as Jesus takes Peter, James, and John along with him, is that this is eyewitness testimony. This isn't hearsay uh, this is this is visual. This is Peter sitting in the garden with the Lord, seeing these things that are going on. And what he sees first is that Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So they've, they've entered the garden and Jesus begins, he wasn't prior to this, he begins undergoing some form of emotional turmoil. He starts, he starts agonizing. These words, uh, literally translated, the, the deeply distressed means that, that Jesus was amazed or astonished or alarmed at the amount of grief he was undergoing. This, this horror had set upon him, and he was surprised at the weight of it. Deeply grieved, very sad, anxious, distressed, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And so the reader, you and me, say, why? Why? What's happening, what's coming? What's, what's going on? And I think most of our immediate response to this would be, he's going to die, right? He's talked about it throughout the gospel at this point. Jesus is going to die and, and now he's, he's overwhelmed with the grief the grief of his, his oncoming death. And while I don't think that is um, incorrect, I do think it might be incomplete as to why we see Jesus in this immense emotional turmoil. A couple reasons why. One is there is a, a long list of, of martyrs for the sake of Christianity. A long list of men and women who have died for the faith and who didn't face death this way. Uh, there's a guy named Polycarp who was the bishop of Smyrna in the second century and I think this is, uh, this is fascinating. It, it, Christians at that time were under the persecution of Rome and he is before the Roman rulers, and they are saying, recant your faith. Say that you're not, you don't believe this, that you're not a part of this, or we're going to burn you at the stake, feed you to animals, we're going to kill you. We're coming for you. And this is, this is what uh, Polycarp's reply is. He says, you threaten that fire which burns for a season and after a little while is clinched, for you are ignorant of the fire of the future judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come, do what you will. And then this, this account telling this says, saying these things and more, he was inspired with courage and joy and his countenance was filled with grace so that not only did it not drop in dismay at the things which were said to him, but on the contrary, the proconsul was astounded. So the Roman rulership looking at him is astounded with this man's courage. We're gonna, we're gonna kill you for your faith homie lights a cigarette and it, so what and it's not apathetic it's courageous i don't fear you so we look at we look at polycarp and say uh, he's following jesus wouldn't jesus have set the example of no fear in death similarly in, in this gospel in mark we've heard jesus talk about his death mark 8 we studied it a few weeks ago the, the niv translation says that he spoke plainly about his death and saying that he was going to rise. So Jesus not only sees his death on coming, He also knows what's on the other side of it. Life. Victory. So why is the uh, strong, wise, capable God of the universe who put on the flesh of man uh, deeply grieved? I think verse 36 gives us our answer. Uh, he says, Abba, Father. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. This cup. That's kind of the key that unlocks our understanding of this passage. is What, what is this cup? We know from, out, uh, from throughout all of Scripture that uh, the cup is a, is a biblical metaphor for the wrath of God against human evil. It's a, it's a biblical metaphor for the wrath of God. And so the reality of this situation isn't only Jesus is looking to his painful crucifixion and death. He's starting to see, and some commentators would suggest, he's starting starting to experience the wrath of God. And I, I don't know what kind of plans you had this morning, but when you're get to work and your coworker at 9.30 says, how's your morning? You probably weren't predicting, saying, well, I just talked about the wrath of God at 6.30 with three of my best buddies. We're going to talk for a little bit about the wrath of God because what that will help us do is understand who our Lord is because the reality of this situation is Jesus is about to face the wrath of God on our behalf, for you, for me, and so we've got we've to comprehend what it is. Why does it exist so that we can understand who he is for us? So first, uh, what is wrath? What is wrath? Um, if you're a writer, here's a definition. Wrath is God's righteous judgment of and punishment against human evil. Say it again. God's righteous judgment of and punishment against human evil. And what we're learning from this, we don't have loads of time to parse this out, but what we're learning from this, this text specifically is that as Jesus starts to see the cup, he starts to smell the cup, he starts to understand what's coming before him, we learn that wrath is an awful and fearful thing. It is, it is horrifying. Overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. But if you're like me, uh, I don't assume everyone is, but this is something that I have wrestled with, struggled with, wondered about. I look at God and I say, What well, Why? Why? Why does wrath need to exist? What? What? What reason uh, could there be for wrath? Is it an empty threat? Is that? Is that your way of like coercing me into obedience, or is it just proof that you like to punish people? Or what? What? Why does wrath exist? Uh, Romans two gives us a really succinct answer. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it and, and talk through it. Um, but it's twofold. Romans two five says this. Paul writes, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So part one, uh, why does wrath exist? The answer is sin. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart. From, from the beginning of time in the Garden of Eden uh, to right now when we sit in the roo- this room this morning, uh, man has been given opportunity to, to fully and faithfully obey, trust, walk with, in submission to the God of the universe, and the reality from the garden all the way up to today and tomorrow is that we, we haven't done that. We have, we have sinned against the Lord. We have looked at him and said, I, you've got your ways, I've got mine. We've looked at the God of the universe and said, I could be a better one. We have, we have betrayed, we have committed crimes against The God of the universe. So part one of why does wrath exist is sin. Part two that we see in this verse, he says, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So so in our sin, a debt has been incurred. There has been uh, some level of injustice. And what we see is part two, part one is sin. Part two of why wrath comes is justice. Wrath is proof of God's justice. If he, were, if he were not just, as he claims to be throughout the entire Old Testament, throughout the entire New Testament, if he were not just, he would say, no, go ahead, it doesn't matter. Sin doesn't matter. Your crimes against me, your crimes against one another, they don't matter. But thankfully, we have a God who is just, and we see that right here because of his righteous judgment. And again, um, this is not a difficult concept we don't talk about this in church a lot. I don't by any means claim to have a thoroughgoing knowledge of the wrath of God. When I come to this, I, I tend to ask question after question. I ask why, and then he answers, and I ask why again, right? So you, can, you might be like me and say, I, I get it. Nobody's perfect. We all, we all make mistakes. Why, why does there need to be wrath? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be more loving to just forgive? Wouldn't it be more loving to just give grace to those who have sinned against God? Wouldn't that be what the loving thing of God to do? And I, um, I legitimately, that, that is a question that I have wrestled with in the Lord over and over and over again. And what he keeps showing me is, well, this illustration I think is helpful. You came to my house. Uh, we're hanging out. You get mad at me. You're leaving. You get in your car. You're pulling out of my driveway. You're so mad. You get out of your car at the end of my driveway, and you grab your slugger out of your backseat, and you knock down my mailbox. Knock it down. Mason's a bimbo. That's a dumb mailbox. Break it into pieces. Get in your car, and you're driving home. On your way home, you get convicted. I probably shouldn't have broke his mailbox. He's not that bad. You drive back to my house. Knock on my door. Hey, man, I I lost control. I, I made a mistake. I, uh, I broke your mailbox. <laughs> One, I would... If you broke my mailbox, my mailbox is actually connected to the front of my house, so you'd just be breaking down the front wall of my house, which would be a different story. But I, I, I broke your mailbox. I'm sorry. If I say to you, bro, I forgive you, there's grace for that. Don't sweat it. Get out of here. I love you. Go. You get in your car, you're backing out of my driveway. What do you pass on the way out of my driveway? A broken mailbox. Here's here's the thing about grace, about forgiveness, is that it always costs something. Grace always costs something. Forgiveness always costs something. So in my forgiveness of you for breaking my mailbox, I'm not just saying emotionally, I'm not mad or frustrated with you anymore. What I'm also saying is you don't have to worry about rebuilding that, about paying for that, because I'm going to. So what we see in sin is we incur a cost there's, there's a cost that has to be paid, a debt that has to be paid. And when we look at the wrath of God, it is, it is his just payment upon that wrath. And here's the beautiful part about this morning's text, is we get to see the beginning of Jesus saying, no, 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 I'll foot the bill. Nope. I I don't deserve this. He does. But that that price of wrath that there is to be paid, that's mine. Let me step in. So we, we look at this this concept of love in a very morally autonomous society, and we say, isn't it just loving to forgive? It is absolutely loving to forgive, as long as we recognize that forgiveness has a cost. One last thing about wrath before we move on. Um, I, again, this is a little bit of an insight into into my brain and the way that I think. Um, I can look at this system and say, "I, I just wouldn't draw it up like that. I wouldn't, God. I I I wouldn't do it this way. And I think if we're honest, there are men in this room who would honestly admit, I I wouldn't do it that way. When I was setting up the cosmos, the whole forgiveness and grace, justice and wrath. Why'd you let us sin? I wouldn't set it up that way. I'd do it differently. The issue with that is, is I'm looking to the omniscient Creator of the universe, who knows every thought I've ever had as well as yours. He put trees where he put them. He put hairs where he put them. And I'm putting him up against the guy who forgot to flush his toilet and started a fight with his wife this week, right? Like that, that comparison is silly. It is legitimately silly to say, well, I, I'd do it this way. And so here's the thing about being a Christian in general. If at some point God in his word, uh, his will does not cross ours, we are playing the role of God. If, if we are not in some way being crossed by him and having to submit ourselves to him with like a difficult doctrine like wrath, with a difficult, something that we can't understand, why would you do it this way? If we don't submit to him and say, even though I don't understand, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, even though I don't understand, I trust in you in all your ways. We're not, we're not the believers that we're called to be. But jumping back into the text, verse, uh, verse 35 says, Going a little farther... He fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. So a couple of things from this one. He, it, it says Jesus fell to the ground and prayed. The, he's, Mark's reiterating the agony that Jesus is existing within here. Luke 22, uh, which, is, which is Luke's account of this story, says that uh, when, when Jesus fell to the ground that he, he prayed so fervently, he was sweating with anxiety, he prayed so fervently that he, he was um, sweating blood. There's this immense emotional turmoil that he's undergoing, and he is, he is coming here, and he's begging the Lord. And what he says, Mark says it, is that Jesus would ask that this hour might pass from him. Again, this hour, uh, if you've read the Gospel of Mark, if you've read the, uh, the other Gospels, this hour has been talked about for a long, long time. In John 2, at the wedding at Cana, Jesus' Jesus's mom comes to him and says, hey, we need your help. Will you do a miracle? And he says, the hour has not yet come. We see that over and over again. The hour is coming. The hour is coming. Finally, the hour is here where Jesus is looking at the cup of wrath that's meant for you and me, righteously meant for you and me. And he's seeing it and he's saying, now's the time when I'm I'm supposed to drink that. I'm supposed to to drink the wrath of God on their behalf. What we see is this beautiful prayer. Uh, What I would argue is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible, one of the most important sentences ever spoken in the history of humanity. And I'm I'm not hyperbolizing here. I legitimately look at this and say, this crux right here is why you and I have opportunity to eternal life. Here's what he says. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. I want to break that down into three different sections there. First, um, one we see in Jesus' immense turmoil and pain and agony. What's he do? What's he turn to? This is a principle that every one of us can emulate and apply to our lives. He, he looks to his Father in prayer. If you've been around the church at all, you've heard this term Abba um, referred to as a, as a really endearing term of trust and love, um, a, a very childlike term that that uh, a Hebrew child would use for their father. An English equivalent might be daddy. Jesus, the God of the universe, who's raised Lazarus from the dead just a week ago, who's who's walking in uh, on, walking on water, who is healing people, comes to this point where he says, "Dad, dad." But the beauty. Of Not only is it, a, is it a term of endearment and intimacy and love and trust, uh, scholars will be quick to tell you that this term used throughout all types of Hebrew literature is a term that also appears in settings that require a sterner interpretation where obedience and reverence are the predominant connotations. Less big words, it's a, it's a, a, a humble, open-handed, submissive word. You've got this intimacy, this trust, this relationship, side of the the term Abba, I'm in relationship with you, I know you and you know me, I trust you. But then on the opposite side of that, integrated with it, is is this willingness, this obedience, this reverence. I trust you and so I believe that I, I will do what you've called me to do. Part two, everything is possible for you, take this cup from me. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup for me. So we've said it. The cup of God's wrath has been talked about throughout Scripture. This hour has been talked about throughout the Gospels. And we come to this moment and Jesus says, you can do anything. Can we do it some other way? God, I know your power. Is there, is there some way that we could do this that's different than what I'm looking at, what I'm beginning to taste because it's so horrifying and agonizing? Is there some other way? What's, what's happening here? The greatest temptation in the history of humanity is, is right in these words. The God of the universe is experiencing the, the most... Uh, the greatest magnitude of an, an examination of his immediate desires versus the ultimate desires of the Father. He's, he's on his way to, to facing the wrath of God. And he looks at his future and he looks at ours. And he's tempted. It's beautiful. Hebrews 4.15 says that we do not have a high priest or a mediator who is unable to sympathize with us because he is tempted in every way that we are. And so I want you to catch, before we move on from this, the the wonder of the God of the universe being tempted on our behalf. Because I think uh, what we do as men, what I can do personally, is I experience some level of suffering or temptation, and I say, I'm the only person who's ever dealt with that. I thank God for this room, because I sit at a table over there in a circle of guys where I admit, confess, and say, hey, here's what I'm tempted with. And men say, oh, me too. Man, I get you. C.S. Lewis has this really eloquent quote that I'm going to butcher, where he basically says, friendship is born when you look to another and you say, "Oh, oh, you too? And so I want you to catch here is Jesus, on the deepest fundamental level, is looking at you and saying, I completely understand. Every ounce of your temptation, every ounce of your agony, I get even more fully than you do. I understand it. There's a a hymn called, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, and it is uh, a portrayal of what it means to have a brother in Christ who not only rules over us as God of the universe, but stepped into humanity, lived alongside us, and was tempted right alongside us. That's the beauty of the God-man. He knows. He understands. He empathizes, Hebrews 4.15 says. He empathizes. He His heart has compassion and pity on you and your temptation not just out of a, oh, I hate that for you, but I completely get it. Then thankfully he goes on to say these nine pertinent words. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Uh, so here's what we're going to do real quick. If you would, if you're I'm going to tell you to write, even if you're not a writer. Get out your phone and do it. Uh, Write down this. Adam slash disciples slash me. Adam slash disciples slash me. And then right next to that, not what you will, but what I will. Adam slash disciples slash me, not what you will, but what I will. Because here's the here's the thing, man. Uh, this is not, if you put on your your Bible caps, or if you're unfamiliar with what what uh, what's in the Bible, this is not the first time that someone who has represented man has been tempted in a garden. Some of you are quickly seeing. Uh, Adam's temptation, Adam and Eve, for our sake, I'm just going to refer to Adam. Adam was tempted in the garden. He he was the representative of man. God gave Adam, he created Adam to be who men were, cre- who were called to be. And, and what Adam had was an option. He had a choice. He had an immediate desire, and he had an ultimate desire. He was tempted to pursue his immediate desire, called to pursue his ultimate desire. And what does he do? He wants to be like God. Genesis 3, my homeboy had seven verses of being a okay before he threw the thing into flames. So so starting with Adam, humanity has had this, not what you will, but what I will, Lord. And what we've seen is the thread all the way through, right up into the garden. We start in in verse 37, we see in the disciples, and if you're someone who tends to read yourself into a text thinking, which character am I? I'm about to tell you, the disciples are you and me. That's That's who's representing Mason this morning. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Catch this, fellows, garden temptation. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. I do think <laughs> that line is a little bit funny. Uh, Have you ever been so red-handed caught that you literally have no words to say? Like, they didn't know what to say. These guys are waking up. Are you? Are you guys serious? And they don't even have a word. Like, I think it's okay. This is the magnitude of this matters, but the humor of these guys are so shamefully caught falling into temptation over and over and over again. It says then, returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting enough? The hour has come. That's you and me, men. We see these garden temptations. It started with Adam and it comes right back here where you and I sit with Jesus and again and again and again, he says, obey, be faithful, don't fall into temptation. Prioritize ultimate desires over your immediate ones. And again and again and again, we fall. We fall. Again and again and again we fall. So you've got Adam and the disciples and me who say, not what you will, but what I will. Now right, Jesus, who says, yet, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus, not what I will, but what you will. And who is you who he's talking to? He's, t- he's talking to his father. So a, a few things happen here that are really important to understand. One, in Jesus' obedience here, he's living the life that we should have lived. Jesus is living the life that, that we should have lived. But in the same turn, he is now obeying, submitting himself to dying the death that you and I should have died. So he's, he's living the life we should have lived, but dying the death we should have lied. He or should have died. He was, he was sinless. He was tempted, just as we were, but he, but he persevered. He was suffered, but he, but he endured. He was falsely accused, but he remained humble. Jesus here, in his obedience to the Father, prioritizing God's will over his own, is living the life that we should have lived. Yet, Isaiah 53 says that he was forsaken, crushed, punished, oppressed, afflicted, and judged on our behalf. We're going to talk more about that next week. But I I think it is uh, to our um, advantage to sit and consider the God of the universe who not only lived the life we should have lived, but also died the the death that we should have died. Romans 5.19 says it this way. It says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, that's Adam, So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. That's Jesus. And so in light of what what Ronnie talked about this morning, uh, in light of the circumstances that you're currently existing in that that I'm not familiar with, I want to ask, are you suffering? Are Are you battling overwhelming temptation? Do you feel forsaken? Have you been betrayed by those closest to you? Are you struggling to value the beauty of God's grace? You think, yeah, I, I think it's good, but it's not living up to what I think it should. Do you question if, if God really loves you? Look, fellas, he knows the cost. He knows what you did with the mailbox. He knows what it's gonna cost him to take care of that. And here's the thing is that, that our suffering, our temptation, his is incomprehensibly more to, to a, a cosmic fold a gigantic, indefinite, immeasurable, infinite amount more, he looks at the cost and says, I understand it, and I'm going to pay it for you, Mason, because I love you. We can, we can breeze over this, this passage uh, and miss his calling on us, not just to um, obey as he obeyed, but to, to meditate and rest in who he is. The, the Psalms talk about this all the time. If we meditate, consider, if our, if our thoughts are fixed on, Philippians 4 says, consider these things, who Christ is, then it is who we can, we can start living uh, the life we're called to live. And briefly, before we go to discussion, uh, I know there are guys in here who, this is either somewhat new to you, or you're just not convinced um, that this is worth believing yet. And I, I empathize with that. I, I uh, am grateful that you're here. C.S. Lewis has a, a little quote in The Great Divorce that I would urge you to consider. He says, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. So there's two people. There, there are those who look to the Lord and say, Just as Jesus did, Thy will be done. I submit. I trust you. you're 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 the only means, the only bridge across the chasm of my sin into redemption into holistic peace, joy, trust, rest, eternity you're the way you're the truth, you're the life. there are those of us who have trusted in our salvation in Christ, and those of us who continue uh, to pursue our own will to to search and our and wander in our own ways to to uh, resist obedience, submission, open-handedness to the God of the universe who loves you and paid a price for you, and saying, don't, I don't need you to cover that. I'll take care of it. So as we go to tables this morning, I pray that you would consider whose will, yours or his. Uh, for those of us who do believe, uh, who, for those of us especially who are in those circumstances uh, of suffering, of temptation, of confusion, of agony, Look together to to God. This is a time for us as men to, to sit around a table and to talk about the reality of who Jesus is and the practical outcomes of that for me. I pray this morning that you would look to your brother who suffered and was tempted infinitely more on your behalf because he loves you so. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for... Uh, this passage. I thank you for showing me, Jesus, your immense, um, overwhelming grace that surpasses uh, not only our understanding, but our capacity of sin, so that we might um, be restored to you. I pray, Father, that as we leave uh, this morning, that as we move into conversations, that we would... Um, that our hearts wouldn't be hardened by the, the difficulties of the, the agony here, but that we would be softened and melted by your, your consistent suffering on our behalf, that we might be moved into eternal relationship with you, that we might experience the peace and the joy and the hope that you give to your brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray, Jesus, that you would make that so clear to us this morning. I pray in conversation that you would help us consider you, that you would lead us to talk about you and adoring you in ways that are glorifying to you, but also in ways that are eye-opening to us, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts to your truth, that we may live uh, within it. I pray practically that as we leave this morning, that you'd give us um, pragmatic, hard uh, examples and opportunities to leave this room in some realm of obedience, that each of us would move to taking our next step of faith. Spirit, I believe you can do it, and so I, I pray and trust that you will. In your name we pray. Amen.